Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Episode 76, The Survival Overnights, and we are in one of our uh, usual spots to do our podcast in a park in dirty old Durham. Um, So yeah, we're going to spend this hour talking about the survival overnights, and this is our second try doing this. I came up with, uh, often we try to structure our episodes because we had to get to the end of an episode and realize there was more stuff we wanted to talk about and didn't get around to. So we'll often make kind of a list or something. So we tried that and just, it just went on and on. It was an awful episode. <laughs> so we, we scrapped that. Um, it's just, there's so much to talk about with the survival overnight. So we're, we're trying this just kind of open mic unstructured to, uh, see what happens just to kind of talk about it as we go. So, uh, Teresa, it looks like you're waiting to say something. Well, yeah, uh, I often reflect on why I choose a particular topic for our podcast at a certain time. Because sometimes uh, I even make out a list before the season starts and then just kind of abandon that list because other things are on my mind. So I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot for this, Gumby, but uh, what led you to choose to talk about the survival overnights? And we will describe... uh, in just a little bit, what survival overnights are. In all honesty, and I wish I kind of wish I had a better answer for this, but why I chose it this time is uh, we're trying to pick topics that are like really relevant to us in the moment, you know, like kind of asking ourselves, what's been on our mind this week? What have we been talking about? And uh, lately, we were considering um, bringing the survival overnights back and maybe even opening it up to people like uh, I used to. Um, but using it as like a way to focus ourselves to really hone and practice our survival skills for this year, um, to give us certain like benchmarks to see how we're doing and certain things to focus on particularly, you know, like, um, bow drill fire, for instance. Um, we're kind of moving away from that now because we're, we're re-examining our goals and trying to figure out, you know, what we want to accomplish with our time, um, but yeah, that's that's why the survival overnights have been on my mind a lot more than usual lately, and uh, why now I've decided to talk about them. And they're such a big part of definitely my life, um, a huge turning point in my life. So much of what I do now, what I think, how I approach things, goes right back to the survival overnights for me. And uh, a lot of Teresa and my time together, especially in the beginning, revolved around the survival overnights um, that played a part in what we're doing now, including this Escaping Society podcast, I'd say. Um, Okay, so what are survival overnights? Because I know by now you've said it like 10 times and listeners are probably like, okay, it has something to do with survival. (laughs) And overnight. Yeah. Um, Okay, so Let's see. How do I condense this story? Well, I wanted to be a hobo ever since I was a little kid, and along the way, I got a hold of a Tom Brown Jr. 
um, book. He's got this whole series of like um, Tom Brown Jr.'s field guide to whatever, wilderness survival, living with the earth, uh, tracking and nature observation. So I got a hold of one of these books and I was just blown away. I had never even considered survival on the scale that he was talking about it. Going into the woods naked with your bare hands, um, learning directly from the animals. You know, all this just blew me away as a teenager. Um, and that these seem to be real stories as far as I know. You know, he was actually talking about the way he grew up, how he learned this stuff. So I was thinking, man, I already wanted to be a hobo, and I pictured myself traveling around, you know, the typical, like, stereotypical hobo, jumping trains, great big backpack, um, and how great it would be if I could add these skills to my tool set. Because if you're living out of your backpack, you're going to need to improvise a lot of stuff. You're living off your knowledge, your cleverness, your experience. Like the original hobos, like from after the Civil War. Yeah. It's not just a matter of knowing what to put in your backpack, though that's a big part of it. It's a matter of knowing how to do without stuff because you know how to make stuff. You know how to use the stuff around you. So I signed up for one of these classes, and it took me a couple of years before I actually like got around to it. Um, but I took the classes, and... That started me on this path of taking a lot of wilderness survival classes. I was hooked for many years of my life. And, you know, through the Tom Brown's Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School, I went to Earth School, which was led by one of the former head instructors at the Tracker School. I went to Wilderness Awareness School, which was, again, led by another former instructor. And just so much of the modern uh, wilderness survival scene in this country now one way or the other seems to be connected with Tom Brown Jr. He was like one of the, I would say, a founding father almost of the modern wilderness survival movement. He's not the only branch. There's other ways you can go, like through Tom L. Pell, which I also uh, tried to study as much as I could with some of the books and videos he was putting out. But anyway, I was getting notebooks and notebooks, piles of theories. And I would learn from the classes, but they weren't the real thing that I really wanted. I thought when you sign up for a wilderness survival class, they'd take you out in the woods and you would live wilderness survival for a week. And I quickly learned that the format usually, you know, 90% of the time, if not more, is more like hanging out in somebody's garage or some classroom where they draw things on the board and you'd have a little workshop and you'd go through the motions. You'd, you'd whittle a trap. You'd learn basically how it works, but you wouldn't survive off of that thing. And I understand the philosophy of this. They wanted to put their time and energy into showing you the theory, and then it's up to you to go do it. Um, but most people don't. Most people, like myself back then, compile all these notes, and then they'd kind of walk around puffed up. Like, I know how to trap, even though you'd never trapped anything in your life, much less depended on that way of getting food. You just knew how to make a trap. I know how to build a shelter. Maybe I've even spent one night in a shelter. But you don't really know what it is to need the shelter, to what, like all the, the things that come with experience and not theory. So I was starved for that. And eventually, looking at all these notebooks, I realized I'm going to have to come up with something myself. Um, I did find a couple classes that were geared more towards experience. Like there was Matt Corradino, I think his name is. We call him Tofu. Um, but he became a head instructor at the Tracker School and ended up leading like experiential classes where you'd actually go out for several days and live off of these skills. You know, there weren't workshops. It was just you had to go find your food. 
Um, and they were really difficult and challenging, but it was what I wanted to experience. Like, how do these guys do it? And another one I went on was a wilderness walkabout expedition in Washington, uh, put out through Wilderness Awareness School. That was really experiential, you know, just go out there with very little supplies and out in the deserts of eastern Washington. So I built up my survival overnights. I always thought I would rename them into something more interesting and creative, but uh, anything that I tried to rename them to just sounded kind of, I don't know, fluffy, bullshit. They, they, <laughs> they just were the survival overnights and I couldn't help it. Um, so I tried to do these on my own and basically what a survival overnight is, is a progressively longer series of camping trips that take on progressively more survival challenges. This was my unique take on it. The other classes you'd go out and you'd kind of take it all on for a week, um, you know, with whatever they'd said you could bring. And that was it. I wanted something that would more gradually take me into it, something that I could more easily do on my own. So I came up with a format of like, well, why don't I do one night for each of the survival things and the survival priorities, which we talk about in uh, Back to Reality, are shelter, water, fire, food. So why don't I just go out for one night and bring everything except shelter? I'd have to build my own shelter. And then, of course, another night, everything except water. I got to do survival water. And then what if when I got done with those, I'd go out for two nights, taking on two survival challenges at a time, henceforth the survival overnights. I got about, I don't know, maybe halfway through, I think I got into the two-nighters before I you know, was starting to do outdoor education, working with kids. I just felt too busy. They kind of fell flat. I was like, all right, I kind of hit my wall with it. And they got revived when a, uh, a student I was working with had graduated high school and said, I'd really like some advice on how to explore wilderness survival more. I'm thinking about going to college, but I want to learn wilderness survival. That's important to me. And I'd already gone through classes with him, you know, teaching him and his uh, his classmates theory. Mm-hmm. So to me, what he was asking for was experience. And I said, you know, there was this idea I had a couple years ago um, that I never finished. But I think if we do it together, this is probably what you're looking for. You want to see what it really feels like. And uh, how about if I open it up to other people? Do you mind if I invite anybody who wants to come? So that's the survival overnight. So that's what I'm talking about. And it went on for several years um, with many people coming through, many experiences. Um, if you look at our website, uh, we've got a whole like link there that I think it's called like the survival overnights. What, do you know what the heading is for that? Yeah, you can find it on our homepage by scrolling down and there's like a little link for each of the pages that we have. Some are for recommended reading, some are for um, talking about homeless versus houseless, and then there's one for survival overnights. There's also a menu at the top right, but I don't know how many people know what menus are anymore because everybody has Apple products and they're weird. Yeah, so if you just go to our website and <laughs> scroll down, you'll see the link for survival. And uh, you know, I, I would write down many of the stories right after a survival overnight, and I'd share it with whoever was on my uh, list of people that were interested to try to help, you know, let them know what we learned, what, we're cha- what, what we were challenged by, and to hopefully inspire them to come. Um, first year, it was all free. You know, we just got together to do it because I figured I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I didn't feel right about charging it. And every year after that, I'd charge five bucks a night. So, and they'd go up to four nights. The final, like, thing we'd work up to... I called the surrender, and it was a four-night trip with nothing but your clothes. You couldn't bring anything except your clothes, and um, you'd have to work up to it, and that was in December. And the cool thing about the four-nighter was by the time you got to the four-nighter, 
you kind of knew what you were doing. You'd been through so many survival challenges, you know, it wasn't easy, but you knew what to do. And, uh, yeah, I just loved them. They were really taxing. You know, they started uh, really wearing me out. So that's why now I consider doing them, but it's a lot to work up to. When Gumby first told me about the survival overnights, I, I liked the concept of it. I was talking to my parents about it, and my dad had asked me, Uh, why not just go into the woods and try to do it all? Like, why break it up into, you know, this month maybe you do intro to backpacking and then you do, like, intro to shelter, but you carry in, like, your food and your water and all of that. And um, I will say from my experience with the survival overnights, it's really easy to just say, all right, I'm going to go out and try to, you know, start a fire with a bow drill set and find wild water and um, build a shelter. But <laughs> saying it and doing it are really different things. And especially nowadays with the land being so depleted, um, God, it's, it is really a challenge. And these these skills that are often billed as primitive skills, you know, we, we're so much better than these primitive skills. We have electricity, for God's sake. Um, wow, they are humbling. They are, you know, you learn so many insightful lessons from the survival overnight. So I guess that's all to say, breaking it up like this, I think, is a little more doable for what our species has become. We're pretty soft for the most part. And uh, especially in this culture, we're, we're so far removed from the priorities, priorities of survival that bringing them in little bite-sized pieces at first and working up to that time where you can go out and just completely surrender yourself with just the clothes on your back, um, I think is, is a, a very interesting way to do it. And I think it's a little bit more realistic. Yeah, I've had a lot of very smug uh, criticisms and questions over the years from people who never get off their ass and go out and test their survival <laughs> skills. And uh, man, I got to tell you, it's really easy to feel really uh, sarcastic and clever when you're not doing shit. But you go out there, and one thing about this world, and uh, especially getting out there and getting away from society and like roughing it, is it's fucking humbling. Um, I had tried to do the full-on, like, just go full survival into the woods. And what I'd find would happen more often than not is mostly I'd get discouraged. It would be really hard, and I'd just kind of reinforce this this narrative that society was already telling me, is that it's impossible. It's hell. It's horrible. Um, and I knew that wasn't quite true. It was my ignorance that made it seem like that. You know, it was because I didn't know what to do. That I was just, you know, for however long I was out, there was nothing but mistakes all piled up. And it often did feel like hell. So the reason why I was going in gradually is because I wanted to, to redefine that narrative for myself. I wanted to, like, have a good camping experience that was taking on one challenge to increase the times that I would feel some measure of success and encouragement. Um, you know, if you have a skilled teacher... That's what they're going to try to do for you. Like balance that wall between I want you to feel challenged, but I also don't want you to feel overwhelmed because then you won't want to come back. You won't want to keep pushing forward. So I had to find some kind of way to do that for myself. And that's part of what the survival overnights were. 
Um, I've had a lot of bushcraft people, big tough ex-marine types that say, well, I never go anywhere without my knife. You want me to go out there like, and uh, you can't bring a knife? Fuck that. Why would I ever do that? I always have my knife. And to me, I don't even know why I need to ask them what happens if you lose your knife. I was never anti-tool. Um, I carry a Leatherman Wave with me pretty much wherever I go, except unless I'm going to a survival overnight, that they're not allowed. And of course, I came up with the rule they're not allowed. But the thing to me is a tool is great, but isn't it so much better if you don't need it? Then it's an extra thing. I think that's what a tool is supposed to be. It's a shortcut. It's a blessing. If a tool is something that you feel like, wow, I would have that with me everywhere I went, and you can't even conceive of not having it, it's a weakness. It's yeah. a crutch. That's not what a tool is supposed to be. And if you think you can go on like full survival, just go out there in the woods right now, full survival, take it all, all on at once, I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying, wow, that's fucking impressive, and I would love for you. I'd always encourage people that say stuff like that, please come to a survival overnight, because if you can do that, what I'm trying to do out here is going to seem like going back to kindergarten for you, and you would have so much to share and teach the rest of us. You know how many people took me up on that? <laughs> None. I also was hoping like other environmental educators in my area, because I would work at all these places around here, and so many teachers were teaching tracking. They're teaching, here's how to build like a trap. Here's how to start a fire, friction fire. And I'm like, let's actually live off of this for a couple of days. Imagine the stories. And that's another thing I learned. One of the things that I got from the survival overnights is stories. And a lot of those stories are about my failures. It's not stories about trying to make me look like Rambo, trying to puff up my ego, because that's one of the things I learned right away, got in almost everybody's way, is their own fucking insecure ego. Um, I talked about the intros, and I said shelter, water, fire, food, but actually there's five intros, because the first one that I'd start off with, I'd call it intro to camping. And then after uh, one family in particular, like, went back and forth to their car and kind of, like, glamped it up, like glamping, I started calling it intro to backpacking to encourage people, no restrictions, carry whatever you want for one night out in the woods, but uh, see if you can carry it in one trip. You know, we're not going to walk you 10 miles or anything, um, at the most, maybe a couple miles. And that was another thing about the survival overnights. They were local, right here around Durham. I wanted people to learn more about surviving on the land they already lived on. It's great to learn how to survive in the desert, at the beach, the mountains, and actually some of those came later. But the most important thing I thought of was connection to place. To get to know these trees you see every day, what are they offering you? What are the gifts when you try to live off the land that they give you? Um, yeah, so did that answer your question, Teresa? Yeah, and it just got me thinking, too, about the um, – we had a workshop, well, kind of like a gathering yesterday that Gumby was leading and it was talking about how to make natural cordage and Gumby you brought in uh, yucca leaves and some wisteria vine as well as some dogbane and showed people how to do a reverse wrap uh, to make cordage so what do you use cordage for you could use it for a strap for something to carry you could use it to um, make your your string for your bow drill so you can get a fire. Really, really useful. And there was one kid there, and I mean, if you've ever tried to make cordage, it's not the most exciting thing. It's it's fairly meditative, and even adults struggle with... Well, that depends on the kid. I have seen kids in camps, usually girls, that really take off 
and I shouldn't even say that, a couple boys too that really uh, get addicted to it. But yeah, it's not for everybody right away. So the, the child that was there, he was maybe about, I don't know, seven, eight years old, and he wasn't really into it. And um, most of the people that were there were kind of older, like maybe in their 60s or 70s. And what I got to thinking was, if there's an abrupt change, or even a very slow change as it seems right now um, in our supply chain, like I'm talking about food, I'm talking about things kind of breaking down, and I feel like Gumby and I are both in the same mindset right now, especially in the winter season here, of kind of just feeling like, man, things are going to shit. Um, But the older people, they'll probably still within their lifetime have access to cordage, whether it's paracord or, you know, shoelaces, whatever. For Gumby and I, we're, you know, around 40 years old. We'll probably have scavenged stuff yeah, throughout and, the rest of our lifetime. And I'd like to jump in there real quick. One of the things that I learned over the years at uh, Survival Overnight is uh, often we'd meet someplace like, I don't know, a parking lot that would lead into the woods. And I always tell people two things to try to scavenge. Look for litter and especially any kind of cordage and anything that carries something else, like a bottle that you can gather water or even a plastic bag that you can carry bottles in. Um, because you can make those in the woods, but they are huge, wonderful shortcuts. Right. And then you can focus on shelter, water, fire, food. It's not that shelter, water, fire, food are the only things to work on out there. It's that those are the primary priorities of survival. And if you can find things to scavenge, it is such a blessing to have that, that shortcut. And yeah, what Teresa's talking about is like for our lives, We'll be able to scavenge this stuff. You know, I'm looking at these old people in the class. I'm looking at me and Teresa. And there's a pretty good chance that for the rest of our lives, even if society totally collapses right now, we'll never have to make cordage. We'll scavenge what's left, bailing twine, tying stuff together. You know, we may never need that skill. But some of the skills that we're learning, I'm realizing why we're learning them are to pass on to the generation after that. Exactly. Even though there's so much litter right now, when people need to scavenge, that's something a lot of people are going to be able to adapt to. They're going to start scavenging, and things are going to get scavenged out, I think, a lot quicker than uh, some of us may think. After that, these skills that got refined and tested over millennia, who's going to remember them? Who's going to pass it on to the next generation? Who even gives a shit about our grandchildren anymore when we know we're like flipping our light switches, and every time we flip a light switch, you know, we're putting another drop in the bucket that's killing our grandchildren? I mean... You know, we were talking earlier about the culture we live in where we're actually like fighting for the right to murder babies to harvest parts of their bodies for research and vaccines and things like that. In a culture like that, who really gives a shit about their grandchildren? (laughs) But if you're one of those people that does, that's one of the reasons to learn survival skills because somebody down the road is going to need them. But I don't think it's going to be us because that was one of the... uh, and sorry if I cut you off, I didn't realize I'd have this much to say, but that was one of the things that challenged me with the survival overnights is where to draw the arbitrary line. Because no matter where I drew the line, I wanted to give people a limited 
but fairly safe. In other words, if somebody got hurt or we ran into real trouble, which we did a couple times, you know, like it started pouring rain in the middle of winter and it was freezing and our shelters weren't working. And it's like, all right, we're dealing with some like a real threat of hypothermia here. I think it's time to uh, pull the cord on this one. Let's just go home. Um, you know, that did happen a couple times that I thought the danger outweighed the challenge. Um, but it's arbitrary because we're only like a mile or so away from our cars at any time. If we're really looking for food and there's no limits, hell, get in your car and drive home and open your refrigerator. (laughs) You see what I mean? There's got to be an arbitrary line, something you're just imagining is a line. And I realized through doing these, and I never had to ask myself this question before, that I didn't want to pretend like it was 300 years ago. The fact is the world has changed. You know, when you're talking about survival skills, it's got to involve right now upcycling, using litter. Um, I don't believe an indigenous person would get dropped in the middle of this culture and shy away from the litter. You know, I I told somebody, um, and actually I think if you've read, uh, there's this book, Ishii, God, I can't remember. There was some subtitle. But this indigenous person, this tribe, had pretty much died off. And I believe I read that they were using the bottom of bottles, glass bottles, to make arrowheads because they found that they worked really well, and that's what's available. Survival is eminently practical. It's not idealist. So you may wonder, like, why these native tribes that were hunting so well and doing just well – Um, adopted guns so readily because it was practical. And back then they didn't see the downside. You know, everything that they saw that helped survival along until that point was just purely good. It helped the people. This was a new thing, something that had a dark side. Um, I used to wonder that, you know, why the hell did they just, you know, didn't didn't they stick to their bows and arrows? And actually that's a question that came up with like Tecumseh and other uh, native leaders when they started seeing what was happening. It's like, reject all the crap we got to buy from them. It's making us dependent. This is a new thing. Mm -hmm. We don't have any stories in our culture warning us about this kind of thing. It's never happened before, but now I see what it's doing. Don't drink their alcohol. Don't buy their clothes. Don't use their guns. We know how to do this shit. And all that stuff is making us weaker. It's not a neutral or good thing. So I got to see a little window into that through my own experience in the survival overnights. And this is part of what overwhelms me, why we waited till season seven before one of us finally got around to wanting to talk about something that's so important to how we're learning and what we're doing is because there's so much to talk about. That window into real experience, wow, I don't know where to draw the line to stop talking about that. There's so many (laughs) lessons that come from that. Um, Yeah. Well, so all of this of what you're what you've been describing, um, I read over the stories that you have on the website, and I really encourage listeners like, you know, if you're just looking for something to really inspire you and to maybe even make you laugh sometimes, <laughs> check out the stories on our website. Gumby, uh, he writes, I think, really well, and it's it's really accessible. It's not. Um, it just seems like it's alive still, you know, like to read it. And I'll warn you that the first stories on there are kind of like not the best because I didn't really know why I was recording what we were doing at first. So I didn't put much effort into them. It was only after like a couple years in that I'm like, oh, wow, I know why I'm recording these. Like if I don't record them, they start fading out. So <laughs> if you try to read them, like wade through those first ones. But continuing the thought about how, first of all, you know, we're 
we're trying to remember these heritage skills like bow drill or cordage um, making, natural cordage making, so that in the future, you know, perhaps we survive and we can pass these skills on to the generations that are really going to need them. But also, there was a survival overnight that I remember um, there were like cards that you made. And whoever participated got to draw a card, and that was like the one thing that you could bring in. And I think this is how it worked. And it was fairly <laughs> arbitrary. And talk about having to think outside the box. Like, what was one of the most outlandish cards that you could draw? <laughs> and maybe something that actually someone brought. Well, that's actually beyond the survival overnights. Um, a quick, I guess, qu- kind of a quick re- recap of how the survival overnights worked the way I did them is we had the five intros, and they were all one night long. And I told people, if you make it to one, just one out of the five, then you could progress to the two-nighters, what I called them the intensives. And if you don't think two nights doing survival is intense, um, well, they certainly can be. I've had just a couple that were easy. And the two-nighters were two challenges at the time. And then if you made it two of the intensives out of the six, you could progress to the next level, which were the three-nighters. There were four three-nighters. For the three-nighters, and I called these the immersions, and I think of these as the true survival overnights. Um, They always make me think of something Tom Brown told me one time. He said that uh, he was studying with his teacher, who was an Apache elder named Stocking Wolf, and um, He'd finally gotten out of school. It was summertime, and he was planning on just building a primitive camp and living out in the woods all summer. And Stocking Wolf said, if you really want to learn survival skills, practice the first three days over and over and over. Go out there, set up camp for three days, and as soon as those three days are up, take apart that camp, move to another place, do it all over again. And I always wondered, like, that seems so arbitrary, you know, like, um, why three days? Why not four? Why not two? So the three-nighters were really practicing those, those three days that Tom Brown um, recommended you practice to really learn the important survival skills. Because after that, you can almost make up the rest of it and improve it. And for our three-nighters, I'd call them the last brought-in whatever. So for the first three-nighter, it was last brought-in shelter. No restrictions on shelter. Bring in your pillow, bring in your blankets, bring in your hammock, bring in your tent, everything, any kind of shelter thing you want. Because we're going to work on survival everything else for the next three days. Don't bring in any food, any way to start a fire, any water. And, of course, last brought in fire, last brought in whatever. And the surrender was the four-nighter, the, fine, the grand finale. I wanted something for people after that. I didn't want to do a kind of thing where like, all right, I did the surrender. I'm a survivalist. You know, here's my little merit badge. <laughs> and what I came up with was the survival expeditions. The survival expeditions would happen once a season. There'd be four years, spring, summer, autumn, winter. And they would be three nights going outside of our area. I had a whole list of different ecosystems and the closest place to go to to see that particular ecosystem. Um, we got for three nights and it was nothing but what you were wearing, whatever clothes you chose to bring. And I came up with a list of cards, just things that I thought, you know, maybe you, you could use during a survival situation. And uh, there was about 120 of them. And you ask the most outlandish thing in that bag. The first thing that occurs to me is, uh, a teddy bear. One card said <laughs> teddy bear. Now, you could rig up that teddy bear, and that, again, brought up the question, where's the arbitrary line? For instance, one time I drew a card that said walking stick, 
So I decided to make a Rambo walking stick. I wrapped that thing in duct tape. I made a bamboo pole. I stuffed it with a lighter with matches. I stuffed it with some beef jerky. Um, I had a sheet of plastic. I had like a black trash bag that was like wrapped around it with 550 cord as the handle. I had a magnesium striker and a metal cup attached to it. I mean, it was ridiculous. And (laughs) after that... It started being like a contest of who could be the most imaginative, you know, and it kind of, it was a bad idea. It started losing its purpose because then it's like, well, anything like the teddy bear, you could stuff it full of like matches or something, you know? Um, but yeah, the, the survival expeditions. And one of my favorite stories, like personally was, God, there were so many, these, these two boys, Um, were kind of the heart and soul of the survival overnights. They went through them the first year. They were teenage boys, and I'd known them ever since they were little kids. And uh, they sacrificed so much to get through these survival overnights. There'd be birthday parties sometimes. They'd want to go to a friend's house, scheduled during a survival overnight. Nope, we're doing survival overnights this year. Over and over, they chose the survival overnights and made it all the way through the four-nighter. Other than myself, they were the only two people that made it all the way through. And I started with, I don't know, I think the most people I ever had in an intro was 20-something people. That was one intro. Another intro might have a different 20-something people. So that gives you an idea how many people just kind of fell out mm-hmm. as they got harder and harder. They met their wall. They were like, all right, this is enough for me. But there was one that we went to the mountains of Virginia I think that might have been a southern Appalachian forest. That was the ecosystem. But it was in Shenandoah Park. And for those three nights, we saw seven different bears. None of us had seen a wild bear before. And every time we turned around, there was a wild bear. Well, the card that Ayosha, he was, uh, I'm gonna, I was going to give his name anyway. I try not to give names on this podcast. But one reason I'm going to give his name is this dude just did Naked and Afraid. <laughs> so he took this stuff we learned during the survival overnights and actually signed up for Naked and Afraid and just recently completed it. So... You know, if you get a chance to watch Naked and Afraid, look for a dude named Aosha. He actually, like, went through these survival overnights and uh, sent me a little message that was really nice saying, like, man, I sure appreciate, like, you know, what you did and what we did together. And, like, I thought about that a lot while I was out there. Um, but Aosha had drawn a card that said tent. So he brought a tent complete with a rain fly and a ground cloth. For the first two nights, we tried to use a tent the way we'd always been told a tent needs to be used. So we'd crawl in it with no sleeping bag and be on the hard damn ground with no sleeping bag and just be cold and miserable. Only by the third night did we start thinking like survivalists. And we realized (laughs) we had three different things for three different people, he, his brother, and me. And so one of us wrapped up like a burrito in the tent. One of us wrapped like a burrito in the rain fly, and one of us wrapped up like a burrito in the ground cloth. And we stayed warm. It was comfortable. We just piled up some leaves and laid on top of it. And uh, we joked about how we were kind of looked like big bear burritos and hoped a bear didn't walk up on us. (laughs) But man, it's stuff like that. It's the direct experience. Just sitting here on my ass, I may or may not think of that, but direct experience to learn from your own trials and hardships, man, there's nothing like it. And another story of something I drew out of that that I want to tell real quick mm-hmm. is we went to the North Carolina mountains. And again, it was me and these two boys. Um, man, they for a while, they just signed up for all this stuff. They couldn't get enough. And I can't remember what they drew, but I remember that what I drew from the, the, the bag was compass. And I was like, crap, 
you know, like I can tell direction using the sun and the moss on the trees. What a, you know, I wasn't very excited about it. But I brought it because it's the only thing I could bring other than my clothes. And we go out there and we're cranking on bow drill and it's kind of humid up there. And we're cranking and cranking and cranking and cannot get that coal. We're getting so close. And, um, but we're getting that black powder. If you've ever done friction fire, you know what I'm talking about. There's black powder that's burnt, but you need to ignite the black powder to turn it into fire. Well, it turns out that magnifying glass I had, I mean, that compass I had, had a tiny little magnifying glass on it. Tiny! It was too small to light a fire on, like, leaves or grass or anything. You might be able to do it with a big magnifying glass. But we learned that we could use that tiny little magnifying glass, and it was enough focused sunlight to light the black powder, which was already fine and burned like nature's char cloth. And that's how we won our fire. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was just such a feeling of accomplishment and thinking outside the box, learning things that we'd never been taught. Um, Another thing I can think of, like, there's so many things that I learned from the Survival Overnights to experience. It dispelled so many illusions. Um, I've always been taught to fear water. I always thought if you drank out of a wild stream, nowadays it's pretty much a death sentence. It's all horribly polluted. Well, there was a three-nighter that, for one thing, I learned what plan B was. These survival overnights, you fail a lot. And that's when you get to explore what's plan B, because that's part of survival. What happens if your plan fails? What do you do then? So plan B for fire, well, plan A was to boil the water. You know, get water, boil it. That takes care of the cryptosporidium or pathogens that might be in it. Pretty safe to drink as long as it's not horribly polluted, like it's downstream from a factory or something really bad. What happens if you don't win your fire and you're also doing a water challenge? Well, plan B was to dig an earth well. And this is something I just saw in a survival show and learned so much by doing it. Again and again, I'm wanting to hammer that message home. Man, they're like, you don't know anything unless you do it. Experience is learning. Nothing else is. So an earth well, as you go about five feet from the water, at least five feet, um, you can go up to 20 feet if you're in a floodplain and just dig a hole. And eventually you're going to get below the water table and it fills up with water. It looks muddy. It tastes often like crap. I mean, it's just come through all this, you know, swampland. But nothing has pooped in it. And even if there's pollutants around, it's filtered by the ground itself. So that water will be safer to drink. That's my plan B. Plan C, this one time. The banks of the creek were too steep. There was no floodplain near us. We hadn't won our fire. So I had to ask myself, all right, I've drawn an arbitrary line here. Of course I could say, all right, things aren't working out. We're going to have to call this one done. Let's just go home. But I was like, no, I want to learn what I would really do for these three nights I'm out here for survival. Now I've got the question of certain dehydration. I know that's dangerous. That's going to impact me. I'm not going to think right. I'm going to have body pain. I'm going to have headaches or possible waterborne illness. And if I risk it now and do get it, stomach cramps, diarrhea, but I can go to the hospital. This isn't an actual long-term survival situation. Now's the time to risk it and find out. So we filled up our water bottles right out of a river, and this is a river coming through a city. Um, We weren't out in the middle of pristine wilderness, but we were like, all right, you know, like I'm I'm not going to tell anybody to drink this, but this is what I'm doing. It's up to you to decide what you want to take on here. If you've got a better idea, I encourage it. This is the best idea I've got right now is drink right out of the river. There are five of us for that. We all drank out of the river. Nobody got sick. Nothing. No diarrhea. Nothing. That was a powerful moment for me. 
I realized that a fear that's legitimate got exaggerated to me. And uh, yeah, water is actually safer than I'd been taught. And wow, what a liberating discovery that was. But Teresa, you've done some of these survival overnights. You did all the intros and then got on into, uh, I'd say we got about halfway through the intensives, um, the two-nighters. Are there any things that you learned or experiences that really uh, stood out for you that were like new or surprising or changed the way you think? Yeah, well, a lot of what you said, I would would second that, um, especially when it comes to actually doing it. Even the very first intro to backpacking, I was like, how hard can this be? You can bring whatever you can carry in your backpack. Well, I had never really had to plan even for just one night, um, what to bring for a camping trip in a backpack. And, uh, so I packed probably like at the last minute, like I shouldn't have. And I put the backpack on my bed and I put it on my back and I fell over backwards because it was so heavy. I'm like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, what am I supposed to get rid of? I don't know. I don't know if I can get rid of anything cause I don't know what I need and I don't need. So that was a huge lesson to learn, God, most of the stuff you think you need, most of the stuff on a camping checklist that REI hands you or you find on the internet, most of that stuff you're not going to need. And if you learn skills, you'll need even less. So like starting a fire instead of having to bring Coleman stove with propane tanks or bringing a really, really heavy supply of filtered water from your house versus learning how to dig an earth well or drinking out of a a creek or stream or river. So yeah, the direct experience was huge for me. And I also learned a lot about attitude within that because like the last survival um, two-nighter that we did, well, we gave up. Well, I gave up. We were trying to get a fire on the bow drill and it was super challenging and it was just, it was really hard. And I think that shook my foundation. Like Gumby talks about going up against an edge and it really felt, it felt like it sucked. I I did not want to end it, but it just was like, it was cold. It was windy. It was wet. Nothing was working. And I just felt like exhausted from trying and nothing was working. And, uh, that's good to know because if something were to happen or is happening in this society, like the first thing you really need to do is check your attitude. So for me, those were two huge lessons. And I also learned about food. God, I can't remember what I said the other day when we were recording this the first time, but I remember you cooked your first squirrel. I think that might have been the first time you skinned a squirrel and cooked it over a fire. Definitely. I I was not a squirrel eater before then. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that was really magical, as as disgusting as it might sound uh, to a vegetarian or vegan, to recognize the beauty that is within an animal in its death, but that it's nourishing you and bringing life to your body. And how sacred that is. And I know you had a lot of stories um, on the Survival Overnights page about sacred hunting and like really the, all of the emotions, all of the lessons that are learned just from 
having to kill your own food, which, again, we take for granted in this culture. Yeah, for most of the years, I think all of them, I actually didn't do write-ups for the intros, um, which I regret because so much was learned during those first one-nighters. And, you know, Teresa's talking about the intro to uh, camping, which became intro to backpacking. I always thought of it as intro to attitude. I just didn't call it that. But, yeah, it was surprising how many people, like, would be wanting to take on all the survival overnights and couldn't get past intro to backpacking. This was one night in the winter, no restrictions. You can bring anything you want. Um, I remember one boy that showed up, and he was a Boy Scout, and he was so excited to, uh, you know, learn. But he got cold that night. He couldn't get warm, and that was it for him. He was done. That was his wall. And um, one of the things that became... When I first started these, I was a really popular teacher in this area. I had a great reputation, so a lot of people were coming to these and were interested. Um, the more I started speaking my mind and kind of, you know, pitting myself against things that I just thought they need to be challenged, um, the more people started realizing, oh, wait a minute, Gumby does not think like us. <laughs> and one of the things that came up was trespassing. Now, I'd put in all the emails, if I had a kid show up, and I wouldn't put age restrictions on this, because another thing I learned is... Uh, Kids were actually better at these than adults. And I think the reason for that was adaptability. Adaptability is so freaking important for survival. Attitude. The adults would come in with expectations, and as soon as their expectations weren't met, most of them couldn't troubleshoot. They couldn't adapt. They couldn't adjust things. They were done. Um, I remember one woman showed up, intro to backpacking. It was her first time camping. The reason why she stopped there was because people were staying up too late around the fire and she couldn't get to sleep. It was too much noise. <laughs> I asked her, how come next time you don't just adapt? Nobody's telling you where to put your tent. Why don't you move out further? Maybe you need more space. Nope, she was done. Couldn't adapt. Another woman showed up, and she was actually another uh, outdoor educator I used to work with. Really gung-ho. She was into karate. She was always trying to test herself against me and compete with me, which used to annoy the fucking shit out of me. I did not like this woman at all. But I applauded her <laughs> for trying the survival overnights. And she, uh, I remember she was talking up a big game about, yeah, once I sink my teeth into something, I'm going to see it through. I, I know I'm going to see through my, myself through the four-nighter. Well, that first time, she's breaking up firewood, and she's really struggling with it, taking on big pieces. I guess she wants to show how, like, gruff and big and burly she is. And this was a pretty big, burly girl. And I told her, you know, if it's that hard to break, burn it. Like, you know, it's not always about being tough. Sometimes it's about being smart. So if I can't break a piece of firewood out here and I don't have a saw or whatever, I just put on the fire and burn through it. She didn't listen, hurt her back, couldn't get any sleep that night. Boom, she's done. <laughs> and another guy, intro to shelter. The way we do intro to shelter is for shelter, and this is just the introduction. I always tried to make them easy because you're just getting introduced to it. So for intro to shelter... We'd come in, I'd bring rakes, I'd bring tarps, and the rakes and tarps were used to build whatever kind of shelter you wanted, which you could sleep in with your sleeping bag. That was the only thing allowed inside. You could also set up your backup shelter. It could be a tent, hammock, whatever you think your your favorite shelter is. And if if your primitive shelter doesn't work, then you can go to your backup shelter. And the rakes and tarps were to help you to collect leaves, right? If you wanted to. Okay. They were an option. But yeah, most people would go with some kind of debris shelter. Um and this guy, you know, read the directions and everything, big bushcraft guy, even has his own bushcraft group, decided, screw it, I'm just going to do what I wanted, and uh, set up his hammock inside his shelter, just built like a little A-frame over his hammock. 
Now, you might wonder what the big deal is. But the thing is, if we're not all agreeing to the same challenge, it's so disheartening when you're struggling to get through something that's already hard and somebody else cheats in your tribe. Suddenly that cohesiveness, that that feeling of, all right, I know I'm cold and scared and having a hard time, but the person next to me is too. We're in this together. We're going to celebrate tomorrow that we made it. That's gone. That's gone because one person decided they were just going to think about themselves. I understand about having a bad back or something, but this whole challenge was, what do you do if all you've got is a sleeping bag? What can you create? Maybe for you, it's just a matter of like making a huge leaf pile nest and maybe sitting against a tree all night. I don't know what it is, but that was the challenge. So right away at Intro to Attitude, backpacking, it was amazing to me how much... uh, How many people hit a wall before even any survival overnights were introduced? And for me, that was a huge lesson. Um, You know, when I talk about attitude being so important, it's because of the survival overnights that that didn't become theoretical for me anymore. I saw it. I saw it in myself. Like Teresa and I talking about that that two-nighter. Two nights! Two nights! It wasn't even rough weather or anything. We were broken. No reason, but our attitude, our our minds just weren't in it at that moment. That's what breaks people. And there were other times that I was out there that like, we did a intro to shelter where it was in January, raining, and we all built shelters and they all worked. It worked fine because our attitudes were in the right place at that moment. It's attitude. And uh, going back, I get, get myself sidetracked so often, but going back to the trespassing, Anybody that was under 18, I would make sure that their parents were included on the email list, and I would always mention, we are trespassing. Well, after two years, a couple of the parents decided that they didn't like their children trespassing. This infuriated me, because I'd gone to so much trouble to write these long write-ups about we're trespassing, to send them to them, and now after two years, suddenly... It's not, it's not even that they want to pull their, their children out. It's that they want me to stop trespassing. I said, I don't know any way to do that. You have never been to a survival overnight. You don't know about wilderness survival. You're, you're not testing yourself. If you can prove to me that we can go someplace and you can, you can introduce a place and we can accomplish what we need to with no trespassing, I invite you to do it and I'll reconsider. Of course they wouldn't. You know, it's it's so easy to have ideals from your ivory tower and not test them. And uh, yeah, that ended up being one of the big schisms that started hurting the popularity of the survival overnight, stuff like that. I had a big support base among parents and, of course, their kids who were all about it. But things like that would come up. Another thing that came up was leadership. Um, the parents didn't like that I would not lead. I refused to lead. I called myself the facilitator of these. If they ask what should we bring for camping gear... I'd say, I don't know. That's up to you. Test whatever you want to. Because I want you to go find your own teachers. I don't want to be your teacher for this. Go to REI. Plenty of people want to talk to you about what to take for a backpacking trip. Uh, This is the information age. Get on the internet. Open a book. Find your resources. There were so many coyote teaching levels of this. And I didn't want them to just boil it down and like oversimplify it and rob the people attending these of these these opportunities to seek out teachers, to empower themselves so they can learn this stuff. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, that, that ended up being a, a schism and an argument. But 
Look like you were leaning in to say something, Teresa. Um, now I've forgotten what I was going to say. I guess about the trespassing, um, it's, it's also a testament to, you know, how broken we are with our connection to the land because Gumby and I, you know, we kind of have our small sacred hoop and, uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know, like we tried to do this thing I called Foraging Fridays or Famine Fridays, Savage Saturday or um, <clears throat> Starvation Saturday. And as much as both of us have experienced gathering wild foods, it's, it is fairly challenging. And, and to be fair, we're not immersing ourselves into preparation which uh, I guess is kind of what we were talking about in the beginning, like how survival overnights were in the forefront of our minds. Like maybe we should be preparing more for that one day a week or that, you know, one overnight a month, like focus all of our energy because it doesn't come easy anymore. And not to mention, like, unless you own a piece of land that's like big enough and has wild water on it, like you were saying, you're going to have to trespass. This isn't something that is just a natural thing anymore. Yeah, and after that came up, I actually did, uh, I had a couple people step up and say, well, we actually found somebody who said we could do these on their land. And uh, so I said, okay, you know, let's see how this works. We still had to trespass because wherever the borders of their land were, um, we'd find that like we couldn't find everything we needed all the time. So sometimes like, you know, here's a fence. You need to eat for these three days. It's a real survival situation for three days. And you see a pond over there that might have fish across that fence. You think you're worried about that fence? To hell with that fence. And it would also create problems because inevitably, whoever's land we were on, they would want to kind of come out and, uh, you know, be involved without testing themselves. So I'd have people, we'd be out there, you know, feeling that cohesiveness of tribe. Whatever we're going through, we're in it together, which was really a beautiful thing because we had so many different kinds of people. I had like middle-class liberals, uh, you know, conservative Christians, uh, anarchists, grungy anarchists, you know, all kinds of people, kids, adults. But since we're taking on the same survival challenge, there was, it brought us together. We're all hungry. You know, if we have food, we're sharing it. Um, if one person's shelter isn't working and another person's is, that person goes and helps the person's shelter who isn't working. Stuff like that. But if we're on somebody else's land, so often they'd want to come out and visit us. Here's somebody coming out smelling like the dinner they just ate. <laughs> or the soap that they just showered yeah, in. Yeah, the soap they just showered in. And it just, it was not good. You know, after a couple times trying that, I'm like... I'm going to go back to what I thought in the first place, like trespassing. And and also, I like the idea of trespassing <laughs> because you know you're trespassing, and so we're sneaky. And whatever I'm preparing these kids and adults for, for the survival overnights, sometimes not being seen is a huge part of survival. You know, it brought in that scout element, and I love that. I love the reality of that, that we were actually trespassing and needed that. Never got shot at or anything, you know. We didn't trespass irresponsibly. But we're kind of coming to the end of this episode, and one thing I want to make sure that I talk about before uh, I forget is that of all these people that started, only five people, including myself, made it all the way through the whole, all the survival overnights through the four-nighter. Those two boys I mentioned did it twice. No. 
the surrender, the four nighter, uh, both times they, they showed up and man, talk about attitude. The reason why they sailed through is they had the best attitudes. They were enthusiastic. They could laugh in the face of adversity. And we laughed a lot. Matter of fact, the more fucked over we were, the more we laughed. It was the only way to survive sometimes. And the only adult other than myself to make it through was this guy who's uh, kind of a well-to-do engineer, lives in a big house. And, uh, yeah, he just stuck to it. I don't know what his uh, fuel was for that, but he, he saw it through. I guess he's just stubborn, you know. He decided he was going to do it. <laughs> and like so many other adults who change their minds and find an excuse like, oh, here's your it's your fault why I decided uh, not to do it or couldn't finish. He just said, to hell with it. I'm going to do it. And he did it. And uh, he went on to get into hunting, you know, and all kinds of stuff. I told you about the two brothers. They both became teachers, uh, really good outdoor educators. One of them did Naked and Afraid. Um, they explored homelessness and dumpster diving themselves because talk about that arbitrary line a couple times. We were out there, including the first four-nighter, and I was within walking distance of two Food Lion dumpsters, two grocery store dumpsters. <laughs> and so I decided I'm going to consider this part of our survival trip. So I started getting food out. The boys... And I applaud them for this, said, we don't feel like we should be eating dumpster food, so we're not going to eat any of the dumpster food for this trip. Not because it was dumpster food, but because they wanted the extra added challenge. Yeah, they'd never had a hunger challenge. By that point, I'd already had, like, hunger challenges, and I'm like, you know, if I consider this a resource, and two things we didn't allow in survival overnight. You can't spend money, which there was something that came up with that, too. Look, look on the stories of the survival overnights, kind of a funny situation about spending money. And you can't steal. But other than that, scavenging, I looked at as fair part of survival. So I was lining up like pineapple upside down cake, deli meats, uh, cheeses, <laughs> bread, you know, all the stuff I was eating. And I was offering it to him. But uh, wow, how many teenagers for four nights could look at that and oh, say, man. nope, not going to eat it. But they did. Who were the other people you said? Yeah, so those are three, the two brothers and that engineer, the adult, the only adult, and one was a teenage girl. And again, like, uh, she's just has always kind of stood out to me. Um, you know, when all other teenagers, most other teenagers I work with are trying to prove themselves, she always seems so happy to be in the background, to not need to prove herself. And yet, by not trying to prove herself, she just kind of always did. Um, she's kind of a badass. She is a badass. She would step up. I remember, uh, her skinning a squirrel with a broken beer bottle that we found, you know, that we found the squirrel on a, on the road. It was a roadkill squirrel, pretty fresh and just skinning that. And, um, yeah, both, both four nighters, we found a possum in a trash can. Only time we found a possum in a trash can. And it happened both times at different places, different years during the four nighter. And, uh, yeah, skinning the possum and building our shelters. But anyway, I knew that I would have a hard time with this episode because I don't want to get bogged down in the stories. And to me, these are stories because um, the stories you can read on your own, and I hope you do. Um, but in that vein, aside from the stories that people can read on their own, are there any final thoughts? Like I was hoping, because your stories aren't in this. Like I stopped writing about the survival overnights by the time you started doing them. So if you have any story... That'd be awesome because that's the only way people are going to hear it or anything else that you want to share about reflections on the survival overnights or anything like that. Um, yeah. So again, like with me, it always comes back to, to food and to poop. Um, 
poop wasn't really an issue with the survival overnights. Um, cause funny enough, like if you don't have enough to eat, you really don't need to, uh, poop. But yeah, like just struggling to break away from everything that this society has pumped into us, the media, all the way down to our food supply, like everything that's inundating our bodies and minds is detrimental to our connection with the planet that we were born on. Like it's just so messed up. Yeah, we actually learned that shitting was a sign of success. <laughs> yeah, because so we many have enough food. Yeah, so many survival overnights we wouldn't shit, and then suddenly, like, one of us would come back ex- excited and like, wow, I actually ate enough to take a shit. And we're like, woo! You're eating dumpster food right now. Um, yeah, so the uh, the one food challenge, we found some squash that was in the woods, just in the tree line. Somebody had thrown some squash that, um, surprisingly, was still good. So we had that, and we were able to bring in some spices, uh, no food, but we could, like, cook it in, you know, some butter or some sort of oil and have, like, salt or whatever. So we had a feast from what someone else just considered useless. Maybe it was a decorative squash from Thanksgiving or something. And uh, that was huge to me because I just feel like our connection with food, like, what's the one thing, like... You could probably, it's difficult, but you could probably figure out some sort of shelter, whether it's an already existing shelter or, you know, maybe you have like a tarp or a tent or something. Leaf pile. Yeah, leaf pile. Um, Which, by the way, leaf pile, it sounds like it's really easy, but uh, unless you have the right technique down, yeah, go figure. Um, You might want to practice that. Water, you know, we're surrounded by water, whether or not you believe that it's all poisonous or you want to try it for yourself. Fire, my God, like how much effort it takes to win a fire yourself. And I'm not talking about with lighter fluid or a, you know, matchstick. Um, cranking out a coal from a bow drill set that you've fashioned yourself from things from the woods. But that food, man, it might be further down on the list of survival priorities, but uh, it can break you. You can become extremely weak from not, ha- not having enough protein or your blood sugar's messed up. Um, you know, you start to get irritable. You just start to really feel like you can't do it. Like it affects your attitude so much. And I just feel like, uh, yeah, the, maybe the biggest lesson that I learned from the survival overnights is just um, identifying my relationship with food in this culture and like trying to do something about it trying to examine like if I could give up (laughs) dairy as Gumby's eating a piece of cheese if I can give up sugars if I can break away from all of that stuff that arguably you know it's it's not doing my system much good and uh yeah I guess I whatever I said in the the podcast that we already um recorded and erased I, I don't even remember but yeah to me that just it keeps it just keeps coming back to like doing it and really not just talking about it and, and theorizing about it, but really doing it. Yeah. We don't have to worry about what we said in that last one. There's a reason why that sucker got erased. <laughs> um, but yeah, for me to kind of try to close this up, I remember when uh, we started doing these, people would always ask. It's funny that people would ask this question, but when they heard about the survival overnights and trying to figure out what they were and everything, they'd always ask, are they fun? <laughs> and me and those two teenage boys that I was talking about, uh, they're twin brothers. 
you know, we'd, we'd sit around and kind of talk about that. Like, how do you answer that? Because they're not really fun. You know, when you're out there, you're hungry, you're cold, you're uh, struggling with stuff. A lot of it's kind of wandering around, just hoping you'll run into something. Um, so what we ended up telling people is uh, their time well spent. Because <laughs> it was funny, you know, we'd, we'd be so happy to like get done with one and feel so accomplished, but we'd immediately start looking forward to the next one. And it was kind of weird because everything else in our life, if it wasn't gratifying in that moment, we usually didn't want to do it again. But there was something else happening with these survival overnights. They were gratifying in a, a different way than anything we'd experienced before. And uh, they changed me. And I know they changed uh, at least a couple of the people that came through them, you know, just opened your eyes to like even the dumpster diving, you know, where to draw that arbitrary line. I was afraid they might kind of ruin the survival overnights, but they played their part, you know, the... They, they showed us like, wow, I did not know this much food gets wasted and I can't unsee this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they converted a lot of people that were uh, coming through into dumpster divers, um, things like that. And I knew doing this episode, I was going to get to the end of it and feel like, man, I, I have not done this justice. And that in, indeed is how I feel right now. Like, man, I, I have not, you know, it just sounds like this clusterfuck that I just tried to describe And uh, I think a part of that, though, is the lesson of the survival overnights themselves. You can't talk about them. It's not a theoretical thing. It's Mm -hmm. direct experience. And to me, that is the biggest part, the biggest lesson that I might say I have to share about the survival overnights. If you've got theories, well, that's really nice to have theories. But I can't tell you enough that you don't know something unless you do it. And don't be afraid to try it. You know, get together with somebody. Do it on your own if you got to. And uh, that can be hard. You know, don't feel bad if you can't accomplish it on your own. Maybe it's sort of like tipping over a soda machine. You can't do it in one push. You got to rock it back and forth a few times. Um, I certainly did. And let yourself be open to all the things you don't know. The world is so full, maybe more full now than ever before, of people who think they know things that just ain't so. Test those theories. Do it now. Do it now. Um, when you, while you can go to a hospital if you're wrong, <laughs> or or get some kind of medicine, do it now. Test them. Um, yeah. And any final words, Teresa? I always feel like I had more to say, but I can't remember it. Yeah, I just, again, um, check out the stories on our website, and if you've had any stories about. Um, any survival situations that you've been in or any skills that you're interested in or have been practicing, we'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. I thought you'd have more to say. Now my mouth's full. Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay, for our listener write-in, and uh, she sent this message. Well, I'm actually not sure about this name. I think it's a woman. But this was a while back, and this is Ashteen from Australia. And I'm going to do the voice. Okay. Thank you for making this podcast. On episode 13 so far, and it's been very informative and thought-provoking thus far. I'm in Australia and currently having a lot of problems with locked bins and finding places to park near rivers. Well, Ashton, uh, I don't know if we've gotten another message from you from episode 13, so hopefully you're still listening. But I hope, uh, you know, you talked about locked bins, which or the dumpsters out there, and uh, finding places to park near rivers. Yeah, we're still learning this too. So more and more of those bins, those dumpsters are getting locked up, unfortunately. 
And that's just part of the sickness of our culture, you know, to not even want to share what we don't want anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, finding places near rivers, man, I guess that's in response to uh, our earlier podcast where we were saying, find a river, you know, it's such a great resource. But yeah, we've had to adapt like it's winter right now. And uh, the river is uh, a cold and less welcoming place. So we're having to try to find alternatives. But I hope it's going well. And if you hear this, please drop us a line. I'd love to hear how you're doing right now. Um, especially with all the stuff happening in Australia. Well, hell, happening everywhere. Yeah. It's all falling apart. Um, so if you have any questions or comments, please visit our website, www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in baranoid. That's a word that one of the boys came up with. Not paranoid, baranoid. That's when you're scared bears are going to show up. <laughs> Dot com. Um, We have a YouTube channel that you can access through our website. We've got a lot of videos to back up the information we're sharing, um, trying to get more survival skills in there, what we're doing with van life and primitive skills, and lots of plants and mushrooms. So please check that out. And uh, as always, experience it. Don't just look at it and watch it. Go out and see if you can find some. Use these plants. Um, We have a Facebook page. Um, Usually that's just me kind of like venting my tirades about random things. So, uh, (laughs) but we do have some photographs and stuff that we share on there. So I think it's worthwhile to check out. Uh, Hopefully something on there will piss you off and get you activated. (laughs) Um, Whether it's against me or against the government, either way, I think it's good to get activated. And that is found at Escaping Society on Facebook. Um... We have a donate button on our website. So if you've heard anything that challenges you, that you've learned something, that has entertained you in any way, if you found any benefit, um, we would love a a financial donation that helps us in our our lifestyle we're exploring. Um, And if you can't afford that, that's fine. But we'd love to get uh, some kind of uh, message, you know, a little bit of encouragement, a challenge, a conversation, a joke, a story, anything like that. So I think that's it for us. Am I leaving anything out, Teresa? No, I think so. And once again, please look at that link on our website for the survival overnights. There's so much there. And, uh, yeah, we just barely brushed the tip of, of the, what the survival overnights are and were. So uh, we'll see you next time. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no ass.